The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Monday, April 27th, 2020, 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. The New York Times reports that. Wait, wait, where is it? A pale but vigorous sounding Prime Minister Boris Johnson returned to work on Monday declaring that the coronavirus was nearly et cetera, et cetera. I just want to say, I want someday the New York Times to refer to a pale but vigorous sounding Benjamin Wittes. Um, <laughs> pale but vigorous sounding is kind of my jam. Meanwhile, South Korean officials continue to pour shade on, on, the, North, on the Kim Jong-un death watch he is, quote, alive and well, South Korean officials say. Check that, not just alive, like alive and well, so. What's their, what's their, like, why do they want him to be alive and well, South Korea? I don't know, maybe that's just their intelligence assessment. The question is, why does everybody else insist that his absence reflects death as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, a reclusive leader being reclusive. We're not allowed to have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, we have with us from Chicago, historian, novelist, Composer. Renaissance woman, yeah. poser, <laughs> see what I did there? Ada Palmer, welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to have you, Ada. Um, yeah, so uh, you asked us in the before we went live, how I know Ada. And I know Ada because my partner read her books. Um, it was a trilogy um, called the Terra Ignota series. And they were some of the, just quite simply put, the best. Don't, don't get mad at me for saying this, Cory Doctorow, <laughs> but the best, uh, the best science fiction I've ever read. And I found them to be so, like, if you're a fan of science fiction, you know that people often trade like fabulous worlds for crappy writing and like really good writing for really boring worlds. And uh, Ada pulls off both and makes you think about everything and makes you think about the world in a completely different way. And so I fangirled her and wrote her this thing and was like, your book is amazing. Uh, and then you like Twitter. Wait, you, 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 fan, you fangirled her where, like, where did you write this? Your book is an amazing thing. Was it a Twitter Oh, I just like emailed or? you for the, the, your, you Chicago yeah, address, right? Oh, call. I see. Okay. But, yeah. Um, I was like, just FYI, this is life-changing fiction. Good work. <laughs> uh, but then I was working at the time on a research project on censorship and information control during information revolutions, looking at how just new coincidentally. Yes, purely coincidentally. I see. Uh, looking at how new technologies that make information move faster always stimulate new efforts to control that information and so new forms of censorship. Uh, so and have I was you heard of Kate when, when, like, when that's sort of like you happen to be working on a project on, you know, nuclear <laughs> physics and Einstein 
texts you or something. Well, um, I think part of what is the connection there is censorship is one of the themes in the novels as well, which I'm sure right. is one of many themes that excited Kate. Um, but it's a 25th century, which has a lot of censorship in it. And that's one of the tools that I use in the books to present a future, which is weirdly between dystopia and utopia, because your instincts want to call it one or the other, but you can't because it has unprecedented uh, political independence and uh, political self-determination and 150 year average lifespan and a 20 hour work week and all of these other wonderful things, but also severe censorship and severe religious restrictions. And it gives you a sort of surreal, I can't tell if this is a utopia or a dystopia, which is designed for people who read it to then debate with each other. Uh, but it's also designed to realistically reflect the way I think the present would look to a time traveler from 400 years in the past, where we have so many impossible things, right? Smallpox is gone. Our average life expectancy has gone up to 80. We have weekends, uh, all of these different diseases that are now treatable. But also there are things that would be weird and confusing. You know, the aristocracy is gone and Europe's land empires have been converted into something else sort of incomprehensible to somebody from 400 years ago. So it would be a surreal- Or even somebody in the present. Yeah. Uh, it would be a surreal mix to somebody from that era of, of things you dreamed of, things you hate and fear and things that are just too alien to be comprehensible. And that's what I wanted the books to feel like also. Yeah, so, so go ahead, Ben. No, go ahead, Kate. No, no, please. Uh, I was just going to say, so like, I was trying to figure out how to describe the books and you just did a kind of great job, but just to kind of give you a very like ground, no, no pun intended, because you're about to like talk about flying cars, basically, um, a very grounded view of like, of like what this world that Ada lives in looks like. It's like, yes, uh, there is no more religion. There are no more pronouns. Like just people do not have, like everyone is they. Um, there is, uh, um, people do not, because they're like, um, there has been this incredible network of what you could, might think of as like flying cars that go so fast that you can get from Singapore to London in 45 minutes. And so no one works where they live. They can live and work wherever they want because they can take these cars so rapidly places. And so like you're not bound by any geographical constraints, which is a lot like putting the internet onto the world, which is a lot like the moment we're experiencing right mm -hmm. now of all of a sudden every nothing being constrained by a geography or time or whatever else in, in, in certain extents um and then she like and then all of the kind of the, the fallouts of things that have happened because of this new technology which is like that people don't have like traditional families anymore they're they, they have boshes which are self-selected like groups of people that they decide to live with and people buy into rule sets and identities uh and instead of like having uh, like a Europe, like having conscribing yourself to the laws of America, you conscribe yourself to the laws of like a given rule set or whatever it would be. Like Everybody, when you come of age, you choose which government's laws you think reflect your values and your desires. And you live by that government's laws, no matter where on earth you live. Nations still exist, but nations are non-geographic. And if you feel that you're French, you sign up to be part of the French nation, even if you were born in Singapore and live in Hawaii, because nations still exist, they just run everything sort of like the way we run expats now. Because over time, everybody cumulatively came to be ex expats. Because when you're buying a house, if there's a really great house for sale in the Bahamas, 
that's a great place to buy a house, regardless of whether you're from France or not, especially if you can still work your job in Tokyo and go to your lunch meeting in Paris without a problem. So it looks at what happens to nations not ceasing to exist because there aren't borders anymore, but continuing to exist in a situation without borders where a nation is more about who you as a person believe your identity group is than it is about where you happen to have been born. So I want to ask, uh, go back to the, the question of the connective tissue between your day job and this fiction. Yeah. So you are a Renaissance historian yeah. at the University of Chicago. So for those of the viewing audience who do not understand what that <clears throat> sentence conveys, that is roughly like playing center field for the New York Yankees. Mm. Um, I mean, that like, <laughs> like for, for a historian, like having a, 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 a position at a university like the University of Chicago is a- In a field as like, let's just say they're not always hiring Renaissance historians. With <laughs> right, like, like, which, yeah. <laughs> so I, when, when I was in college, my then college girlfriend had this roommate uh, who, I met when she was a freshman because she was uh, the roommate of my girlfriend. And uh, this uh, young woman told me as a 17 or 18 year old that she wanted to uh, be a Byzantine historian and do a dissertation about the Crusades. And I, uh, you know, I remembered this very vividly because, you know, people who know exactly what they want when they're super young are almost always wrong about what they end up doing. And Leonora Neville is today a Byzantine historian at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Mm -hmm. She did a dissertation about the Crusades. And, um, you know, and so I have been amused to watch as a, but, but all of that is, a, is, a, is an aside. The main point is like, you're like, you're a, a, a serious academic historian who writes on the side uh, publishable science fiction of a type that makes Kate jump out of her skin. So my question is, what's the relationship between those two careers? I mean, in many ways, there's nothing more similar to the future than the past. It's a long span of time in which cultures evolve uh, and undergo processes and have wars and you watch them develop. So for me, the interest was the other direction. I was dedicated to science fiction from when I was tiny and I was standing on tiptoe to pull old Asimov paperbacks off my dad's bookshelves. Uh, and I became excited by history because of my excitement about the question of how history changes over time, how peoples and uh, political groups evolve over time. And especially my interest in the symbiosis between events and ideas. So when an event makes a culture then come up with a new idea of what is true, and then that new idea of what is true makes people behave differently that in turn causes a new sequence of events. Uh, so I study the symbiosis between events and ideas. Uh, to give a, a specific example, um, you know, Freud before World War I is very interested in the idea that the fundamental psychological force is eros, uh, is, is love and desire. Uh -oh. That's the, the thing that pushes um, uh, stuff. Did we freeze up? Are we good? No, I can see Ben just froze for a second. Um, after oh, World sorry, I thought you guys froze. Um, let me switch internets while you're talking. After Go ahead, experience. Carry on. Yeah. 
of World War One, Freud came up with the idea that there's a second instinct, which he calls the Thanatos or death instinct, right? This 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 destructive element within human nature. These ideas, neither of which we use anymore, nonetheless, became very influential in people debating, well, what is human nature really like, et cetera, shaping our ideas about human nature that went from the 1920s forward into the middle of the century, and in turn shaping things like economic policy, which is based on how we imagine human beings behave. So World War I influencing Freud influences ideas, which then influences the economic setup that the next half century has, which will in turn shape its wars, which will in turn shape the next set of ideas that people are gonna have. So that's the kind of history that I do and that excites me and brought me to history. Um, and I ended up doing the Renaissance more because I could find an advisor who did that kind of history, wanted to answer that kind of question. Uh, who worked on the Renaissance then because I didn't know anything about the Renaissance when I started my PhD in it. Uh, I, I, I love it now, um, but I came to it because it was a period that I knew I could study with that question in mind. The question being, how does what we think is true affect what happens? And then how does what happens affect what we think is true in a cycle? So what's an example of that in Renaissance history that you've written about? I mean, what, 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 when you, I mean, you give the example of Freud and mm -hmm. World War One, which most of which I didn't hear because my internet was blinking out. But uh, but situated in your actual work, right. relationship between belief in truth and and influence on events looks like what in Renaissance history. So the big one that this tends to come back to, and I'm actually working on a little pop history book about- I was this hoping question. you were gonna say, is this the Middle Ages yeah. versus Renaissance one? Yeah, this is part of the Middle Ages versus Renaissance thing. And it's actually very difficult for us to get at the Renaissance and Middle Ages. And a lot of people, um, this project was sparked by a discussion online where people have effectively been asking, is it true that the Black Death caused the Renaissance? And if it's true that the Black Death caused the Renaissance, then will the COVID pandemic cause a golden age as well? And when that question gets shared around on Twitter, all the medievalists flip out and say, no, 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 you are wrong about all of the premises in that sentence. Uh, and it's my job as a Renaissance historian to go in and say, yes, the medievalists are right. Uh, the core of it being that the Renaissance wasn't better than the Middle Ages. We have this myth of a bad Middle Ages and a good Renaissance. Uh, and that myth is partly made up in the Renaissance and then partly made up in the 19th century. Uh, but when you look at things like demographics, life expectancy drops when you move from medieval to Renaissance. Wars increase, technology has gotten better, so wars are deadlier, we have better cannons, and now we can raise the whole city and just, instead of just killing the army outside. Uh, diseases move faster when trade is increasing. The Black Death never goes away. That's the biggest misconception. People think of it as that's 1348, it's time for a third of the people to die and then the plague is over and it's gone, goodbye. No, the plague just remains persistently present for the next several centuries. It doesn't go away until the 18th century. And in that intervening period, an average large city like Naples or Florence or London is gonna be emptied by the plague pretty regularly once every 10, five years, depending, sort of one in seven years or one in 14 years. Uh, there'll be a giant bout of plague that will kill, you know, 20%, 30% of the city and the rest of the city will flee for a while and then come back. So, but we have this myth that the Renaissance is a golden age and then the confusing question becomes, why do we have that myth? 
Uh, and there are two reasons one from the period, one from the 19th century. And I actually enjoy telling the 19th century one first because it makes a little bit more sense. So by the time you get to the 19th century, you have all this Renaissance art sitting around and you have all the Renaissance sculpture and impressive Renaissance stuff. And everybody is used to going on the grand tour and visiting Italy. And if you're an aristocrat and you're proving that you're cultured, you have an opinion about whether Titian is better or not as good as Ghirlandaio. And you have reproductions of these things in your palace and so on. And so everybody is excited by this golden age and a lot of people study it in the 19th century. And in the middle of the 19th century, one of the people who studies it is a historian called Jakob Burkhardt, who's a German historian, who writes a book called The Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy, where he proposes that the, what caused the Renaissance golden age was the development of the modern sense of individualism, uh, that, that suddenly instead of Europe being a sort of a slumbery, vaguely communist collective -y thing dominated by faith, there came the idea that uh, there would be individual human excellence and individual people would try to self-fashion and, and present themselves as excellent and, and write autobiographies of themselves and figures like Michelangelo who are not only famous, but sort of Renaissance man, right? That idea, the Renaissance man idea, which is a 19th century idea, not a Renaissance idea, uh, comes in at that moment. Uh, and he uses figures like Leonardo da Vinci as the defining, you know, this is about the human itself being excellent. And there's a famous quote from Giovanni Pico della Mirandola's uh, Oration on the Dignity of Man uh, that's, that's much quoted in the period that says, being unwilling to accept second place in the universe, let us vie with the angels in dignity and glory. <laughs> so there's this idea that, that the Renaissance was when individualism was born. This is not true. But it's very exciting to people in 1850. It would have come as something of a surprise to the Greeks. And lots of other people then start proposing other theories of, oh, well, what causes the Renaissance isn't individualism. It's actually the birth of proto-democracy. Because Florence and Venice, which were republics, were where the stuff began. So it was actually the beginning of the path toward modern democracy that was the core of the Renaissance. Or someone else will come along and say, ah, no, it's it's capitalism because these this is the birth of banking and the financial centers of Italy. And it was the presence of banking and finance and the co uh, competition between the merchant guilds that was the defining moment of the beginning of the Renaissance being this path toward modernity. All of these theories have been discredited and replaced with the a whole lot of stuff happened at once and we need all of it to explain it. But it meant that from 1860 on, there was this idea that some X factor, some super important intellectual thing, something in our head appeared in 1400 basically that began the launch toward modernity and ended the sort of static middle ages. And then people argue differently about what that X factor is that appears. And this is a way of modern people trying to make a claim about what defines us, right? Saying what defines modern people, what made all the good stuff of the Renaissance and modernity, it was capitalism. Boy, do you see that argument during the Cold War. Uh, it was individualism. You see that argument during the nationalist movements of the later 19th century. You see different claims of the Renaissance was launched by X and X is what defines modernity. So it's just a projection of current situations backwards onto history in order to create a sense of self and understanding of like what's happening at the time. And but in order hang to on a second. This golden age. I wait. Wait a minute. I want to. <laughs> I, 
So. I want to defend Renaissance traditional. Well, and I will too. Because hold on, hold on. I want to finish it. Right. Which is why I said there's two halves to this. The reason the Renaissance is popular now and the reason the bad Middle Ages get discussed along with it is half because of this trend that starts in the mid 19th century. And that makes it really hard for us to study the actual Renaissance because it's sort of covered with glitter and you have to dig through that to get it what actually happened. The other half was something that happened in the Renaissance itself, which is that circa 1400, there is in fact a project to make a golden age. Um, so in the 1300s, which we can dispute whether that's medieval or Renaissance, a lot of people say it's still medieval, a lot of people are saying it's Renaissance, but in that period, in Italy especially, but also in other places, there's a sense of crisis. There's a sense of an emergency, a sort of an apocalypse. And in particular in Italy, you get this, this uh, multivalent fear that you know, the diseases are wiping us out. The foreign powerful kingdoms across the Alps, France, the empire, Spain, they're invading Italy. They're conquering it from the north, from the south. Italy is getting wiped out. Unless we change something radically, Italy's gonna be wiped out. And uh, the, uh, the third crisis there is what Shakespeare is sort of making fun of in Romeo and Juliet, which is that Italy was incredibly filled with factionalism and faction fighting. And the problem when you invent banking and then you have a whole bunch of families which suddenly become the wealthiest people in existence since Crassus of Rome, is that they have more money than the government of the city state does. So if the city state tries to tax them, they, they're like, well, I could pay my taxes or I could hire an army larger than the army of my country, conquer my country, be Duke, and then be done with this and kill my enemies and, and, and end it. So there's, there's an unprecedented amount of factionalism and faction fighting and people taking over stuff in the Montague and Capulet way that Shakespeare depicts. This is not new in the Renaissance. It was absolutely going on in the Middle Ages, but the increase in wealth makes it worse and makes it bloodier. So there's a sense that there's an emergency unless we fix this, unless we make ourselves stop having civil wars all the time, unless we prevent foreign conquerors from making more inroads, something has to change or we're all gonna die and there won't be any Italy anymore. The proposal is to look to antiquity, to say, well, back then we, the Italians who were Romans and we were strong and united and we conquered France and Spain and all these places we're afraid of now. We had a large stable empire for a long time. Rome is their imagined golden age and they're concentrating on the good parts of Rome, like on the Pax Romana. We're, we, we're very fond of Caligula and the bad emperors. Uh, today, but they're thinking of the Pax Augusta, Pax Augusta or Pax Romana when you could walk in safety from the top of France all the way to Turkey on safe roads because there weren't bandits. When you could sail across the Mediterranean and unless there was a storm, your cargo was going to get there because there weren't pirates. It's the only time there have ever not been pirates in the Mediterranean. There are pirates in the Mediterranean now, but Rome was somehow strong and stable enough to make that not happen. Their idea is, can we replicate that? Can we replicate the Roman political system? And the proposed method is to study the books of the ancients, to recreate the library of the ancients, to recreate the educational system of the ancients, and say, if we can educate the next generation of Italy's ruling class to have the education that produced Cicero and Seneca and all of these virtuous leaders that we read about in Roman histories, then they'll, they won't behave like Montague's and Catholic. Um, they're looking at the story of the Roman Brutus, not the one who killed Caesar, but his ancestor who, when it was his turn to be consul, 
his two sons tried to organize a coup and take over the city and make him king. And when the coup was exposed, he had them executed, which is something that nobody would have done in the late 1300s. They would all be great, now I'm king. But uh, the ideal of looking backwards is, can we produce a generation of Italian leaders who are gonna be this virtuous? So they try, and this is really what the revival of antiquity is about. It ends up reviving a lot of technologies, construction techniques, perspective, linear perspective stuff that revolutionizes art. But the, the initial killer app, right, that's pitched by the people who wanna propose doing this is if you give your son this education, rich dude, your son will be more princely than princes and will succeed the way the Romans succeeded. And when I say killer app and rich dude, I mean it because this is a period when a book costs as much as a house because every single page is a dead sheep and the number of man hours necessary to produce it is staggering. So when Florence is investing in a library, you know, the largest library in late medieval Europe is the University Library of Paris, which had 600 books. Uh, which was staggering in the day. So if Renaissance Florence, by the time we're in the 1450s, is investing in a city library that has over a thousand books, that is a larger GDP investment than the moon landing. And it's only going to happen when wealthy elites who can afford that think they're going to get out of it something equivalent to what the US thought it was going to get out of the moon landing, which is political stability by intimidating your enemies, displaying your wealth. Uh, so the production of all of this cultural material is also integrated with the wars and the chaos and the sense of crisis. Because if you uh, feel that you're in a position of political weakness relative to France, but the French ambassador visits your city, and when he gets there, the city is filled with ancient Roman statues like he's never seen before. And ancient Roman architecture that looks like the Roman ruins in the backyard of his daddy's castle where he grew up, except instead of being impossible to replicate, here they are, brand new, and right here, and, and there are you know, life-size bronze statues that look like they're about to come to life, just like he knows the Romans used to make because there are relics of this in France. But um, here they're brand new. And he's like, you know what else is made of bronze is cannons. You don't wanna fight this country. You wanna be an ally with this country. Because uh, you could march in with the French armies and march on whatever city it is, Florence, and sack it, right? And take the literal bags of gold that are piled in the basements of these wealthy merchant bankers. You can do that. But if you do that, all this amazing impossible stuff, the architecture and the bronze are going to be gone. Or you can make an alliance with it. And then you can say, let's be allies. Send me a bronze smith and send me an architect and send me a Plato scholar. And I'm going to do the capital in France like this. And then when the ambassador from Spain and England come, they're going to feel like uncultured idiots just like writing in the Florence, it becomes, the, the, the final sentence is just to say, all of the art production is a result of the sense of chaos and emergency and the high mortality rate. It's not that it's a peaceful age and therefore can produce art. It's that it's a chaotic, desperate age and therefore has to produce art. Right, but it's not just art that it produces, right? So I think if you think about like what is the defining feature of the Renaissance in Italy, it is art and thought. In Northern Europe, it is um, uh, uh, printing and 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 religious ferment and dissent, 
which triggers, of course, the Counter-Reformation in, in, in Italy. Um, in, the, uh, in the Iberian Peninsula, it's the kind of dawn of the age of exploration, right? Uh, there's a lot going on here in a very short period of time, and there's a technological explosion. I mean, it's uh, not a very short period of time. It's 350 years. Well, that's but that's a, a century that's a longer than the U.S. has had. Right, so far. but that's a short period of time compared to the sort of seven or eight hundred years before it. Right, where when 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 you say they're looking back to antiquity, they're really looking back to third and fourth century Rome and earlier. Mm -hmm. So it so it's like they're looking back a thousand years over a period of. 300 years, right? Yeah. I and, mean, it, yeah, keep going. And I guess my question is, is it fair to attribute all of that to perceived political crisis in Italy, which, by the way, the amusing part of your story to me is that the one thing Italy doesn't get out of this is independence. Because yeah, Venice does okay, but Italian unification doesn't happen till 1870. And, you know, like an Italian nationalism, weirdly, they stay very Montague and Capulity for a really long time. And until... the Italian unification movement founders loved the Renaissance and, right. and, <laughs> and, and quoted bits of Renaissance speeches about liberty and so on as a way of trying to say what what caused the renaissance it was the beginnings of the birth of italian, italian national and it was right. ferociously crushed by bad france and bad spain right because they all they all they, they want to describe um like everything that's happening in the 15th century as mm -hmm. like proto verdi um but leaving that aside I, I think like you've given like an incredibly compelling description of what happened in Italy. Well, and remember and, what I was describing what I'm describing is where the myth that it's a golden age comes from. Because the, the, the plan is let's make a golden age. And then the propagandistic claims that you get after a, after a decade or two and then for a century are we are now a golden age. So the Renaissance says that it's a golden age. Right. It sort of announces itself ages. as such, yeah. and then the 19th century buys it. Exactly. And of course, Leonardo the 19th Bruni specifically invents the Middle Ages in about 1410. And often I'll be chatting with medievalists that'll be complaining about some injustice and smear against the Middle Ages. And I'll say, yeah, that's my guy's fault. Sorry. And they always get this little smile because every medievalist has always felt they deserved an apology from the Renaissance for <laughs> the, the, the calumny of the Dark Ages. But again, I, I, I want to defend the the uh, romantic approach to the middle uh, to to the Renaissance for a second, because if you're, you know, a nineteenth century early nineteenth century Brit, mm -hmm. like say. Lord Byron, right, and you're wandering uh, 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 romantically through Southern Europe, and you come upon Venice. Yeah, it's well, you're knocked off your socks, yeah. and it's qualitatively different looking from a yeah. medieval city, and 
you're still odd. You've never seen by... a medieval city though, because they weren't preserved. Bruges is there, you know, there are some medieval. I mean, one of the things is that these cities are self-fulfilling source spaces. Uh, <laughs> Florence is a beautiful, intact Renaissance city because everybody bought into the propaganda of Florence being the capital of the Renaissance and therefore always protected and preserved it never broke my god this sounds like my history all of a sudden sounds like my historic preservation class and like zoning and landing (laughs) (laughs) and and you can tell the same story and have it feel weirdly moving or weirdly jarring so you know one of the one of the amazing stories of the survival of renaissance florence is world war ii because of course almost everything in italy is bombed in world war ii Um, but florence is not because everybody loves the art so much uh so that the uh, allies were given the order no bombing in Florence except the train station, and you must bomb it in daylight. This is an incredibly rare order. Uh, you may only bomb the train station, you must bomb it in daylight, despite the enormous risk to human life of that, as opposed to nighttime bombing, uh, in order to guarantee that you don't hit you know, the sparkling capital of the Renaissance. And when the Nazi commander in charge of the city was there, who is, is, oh, whose name I always can't remember, who really is one of the, on the short list of, we can call this person a good Nazi. He joined the party because he wanted to try to protect culture and he spent the whole war smuggling Florence's Jews out and protecting them from the camps. He like really, you check every box of what you would want somebody to be doing at the time. He's given the order when leaving the city to um, uh, bomb the Ponte Vecchio uh, because they're supposed to destroy the bridges to keep the allies from advancing. And he refuses to carry out the order. Uh, this is the old Vasari corridor with the Medici art collections inside it. And he just refuses to carry out the order. He instead demolishes buildings on either side and he uses them to build a barricade, but he won't touch uh, touch the Medici art collections. And so he's celebrated as a hero now. Florence got that treatment. Venice got that treatment. Naples didn't. We just bombed the heck out of all the amazing Renaissance stuff that was in Naples and burned the Neapolitan archive because nobody cared about Naples and the Renaissance because all of our stories about the Renaissance were that it had, at the time, were that it was the cradle of democracy and therefore only the democracies mattered. Only Florence and Venice were the real Renaissance, so we're gonna protect them. Is it too soon to make a Pompeii joke? No. (laughs) We have the stuff from Pompeii because it burned. But so you're absolutely right that that a person in the 19th century who wanders into Venice or who wanders into Florence has their socks knocked off. Most people today who wander into them for the first time have their socks knocked off. I had the experience of having my socks knocked off. They are stunning. And, and this is a real amazing, beautiful world. But we have to remember that a lot of what we should be comparing it to isn't there because those are there because they won the propaganda game. Uh, and one of the lessons I keep coming away from the Renaissance with is history isn't written by the winners. History is written by the people who write histories. Uh, we've had this conversation about historiography before it's like it's all about it's written by the people who write histories to put it another way in the words of Lin-Manuel Miranda who lives who dies who tells your story yeah um, it's like Uh, and uh, Florence started writing the best histories earlier so we have a great incident where there was a war between Florence and Milan and Milan was basically about to capture Florence but then the Milanese commander dropped dead of a fever and they went home and Leonardo Bruni writing his history, which is the same history that invents the Middle Ages, called this a great victory and described how the Florentines defeated the Milanese and drove them off. And the, you know, the grandson of the, 
of the guy who dropped dead is like, what? No, I was at that battle. My dad just died. <laughs> when? What are you talking about? But, you know, so he promptly hired a historian to write a history of Milan to tell it from his side. Uh, so none of this is to say that I don't love the Renaissance or think the Renaissance is amazing and produces amazing stuff. But we have you just to don't think it exists. We have to cut through the propagandistic part about what people have claimed it did and was to get at the reality. And the reality is not a golden age in the sense of it is now perfect and everyone is happier than it was before. It's an amazingly fruitful dynamic age. I like to call it the exponential age in which change was rapidly accelerating and the increase in wealth and trade meant that um, uh, everything that had already been going for the previous couple of centuries started going faster uh, and you got it more intensely. Um, there's a there's a silly old story. I could look up the author's the 1950s children's story about a powder called ever so much more so. Uh, and when you put it on things, it makes their characteristics increase. So if you have Is a it just MSG, if you have a comfy mattress and you put ever so much more so on it becomes a really comfy mattress. It's like heaven to lie on it. But if it has a squeaky spring, squeaky spring will get so loud that it's torturous and you just can't lie on the thing. And if you put it in your coffee, your coffee aroma will be so much more delicious and wonderful, but that little bitter edge in the coffee will become so much more bitter and you just can't deal with it. So if you take ever so much more so and you sprinkle it on the Middle Ages, you get the Renaissance, right? Everything is bigger and moving faster and the fatalities are higher and the changes are quicker and the art is shinier and more expensive in continuity with change that really was there. Um, to, to get past the lie that there was no change in the Middle Ages. And the sixth century is really different from the eighth century, which is really different from the 12th century. It does, I think, accelerate in the Renaissance. It does change in that way. Um, but the illusion that the Renaissance was therefore better to live in, I think erases the incredible courage and passion that it took to live through the Renaissance and keep rebuilding when things were destroyed so often. I constantly am reading the biographies of Renaissance people. I was just working today on Francesco Pelopo, right? So this is a, a, a guy, It's he's born circa 1400. He becomes a scholar. He uh, moves to Venice so that he can get a chance to go to Constantinople and learn Greek. Goes to Constantinople and learns Greek. While he's there, there's a, a confrontation with the Ottomans, the city is put under siege, his Greek teacher dies, he adopts his Greek teacher's orphans and, and, and helps raise them, uh, marries the eldest daughter, uh, eventually things recover a bit, he's able to go home to Venice, comes in on the ship to the port in Venice to find it empty, because this was yet another plague year and the city of Venice has been emptied yet again, imagine that, like just having escaped the siege of Constantinople and then sailing back into your home city and there's no one there, it's a ghost town. You know, and then he goes from there to Bologna where the entire ruling family had just been massacred. So they had to go find the illegitimate son of the former Duke's brother who had been being raised as a blacksmith. This is where the Game of Thrones blacksmith being the Zebra King thing comes from. Uh, and, and he was like, I can't deal with this. So he fled to Florence where he got on the wrong side of Cosimo de' Medici and then there were assassination attempts and then he fled to Milan and worked for the Duke who was then murdered by another guy who replaced the Duke. And you're like, how can he still be writing an epic poem about the nature of virtue? Thanks for making me feel bad about not finishing my draft. 
Ada. <laughs> yeah. I was. Well, but they, they do break down too. I think just like us, they do break down in the play year, right? Falelfo doesn't advance that epic poem in that year. Yeah. But two years later, he's bounced back. And so I think the amazing cultural, artistic, political, uh, economic output of the Renaissance is even more amazing when you realize how terrible an era it also was to live in. Okay, so I want to ask you, I want to ask you to go back to the, your futurism now and say the, the Renaissance created this propaganda about itself. Mm -hmm. uh, the 19th century bought it. Right. And we've been stuck with the myth of the Renaissance ever since. What is the myth that we're, we are propagating on the future, that the future three centuries now is going to buy about us and is actually kind of bullshit? Um, so the, the fun way I play with a thing with that question in the, um, in the novel is actually to point out a pattern in almost all other science fiction. Uh, when I write, I like to paint a lot with negative space, which is to say, by being silent about things that people usually talk about, you can make your reader really nervous. Uh, so in my 25th century, you're deep into these books and you have no idea what's going on with America. You never hear about America. You hear about Spain and the Philippines and Korea, and you hear about what's happening in Johannesburg, and there's a big deals in Belgium and in Paris, and the silence about America. I have people who have just read book one, like email me, or when I do an AMA, they're like, what happened to America? I have to know, I have to know what happened to America. Because every single science fiction book, you always know what happened to America, right? In Star Trek, every single character knows the names of all the American World War II generals, as if the future is gonna constantly be obsessed with America in the 20th century, that they'll consider us important and formative for hundreds and hundreds of years. To be and fair, the new Star Trek also includes all of the names of the characters, as Jeff former as generals, they name them after all of the characters in the West Wing. <laughs> Excellent. Just but FYI. By, by being silent about it, I make readers realize how much they've come to assume the future will always care deeply about the 20th century. Uh, about the triumphant World War II, about the Cold War, which will be the model for how future eras think about their wars with uh, other alien species, uh, that somehow World War II and the Cold War are going to be major texts of the future's understanding of itself that things will go back to. And challenging that, writing a series in which the characters talk a lot about the 18th century and the 17th century, and they talk a lot about the 22nd century and the 23rd century, and they talk a lot about the European Union, uh, but there's this weird absence of talking about America and of talking about 20th century events. And it's amazingly powerful for the readers who get more and more weirded out by it over time. Um, so that's about challenging whether challenging our expectation that the future will divide history up the way we divide history up. Uh, and at one point in the books, uh, the narrator just casually mentions that in their day, historians debate whether World War I ended in 1945 or 1989. <laughs> Very nice. You see why I love this book? <laughs> it's yeah, like it changes. 
takes all of your priors and just like absolutely <laughs> forces them either up like on like hits you over the head with them just being wrong or in like or just like by by as like Ada points out by silence it just kind of makes you uh self-reflect on what you're assuming about things so um, before we uh take questions just tell us the names of the books so that uh the, so the thousands of people who are <laughs> who are watching this can all order them now the series is Terra Ignota. The first book is Two Like the Lightning. What is the uh, genesis of that name, Ada? Uh, it comes from a line in Romeo and Juliet. The full quote is, Two like the lightning which doth cease to be ere one can say it lightens. And the meaning that the books draw from that passage becomes clear over the course of the first two books. The first three books are out. The fourth book is done. It'll be more than a year before it's out, however, because it's a whopper. Uh, it's twice as long as the other three are. So they're taking their time doing editing. Also, because I'm the worst speller in the entire history of the universe, and they really do have to do like multiple copy edits beyond normal because the spelling is bad. I just want to take a minute to like kind of just, besides you writing these books, which you wrote the first two, if I remember correctly, you wrote the first two while you were doing your dissertation, right? Yeah. So you're writing these like, they're like 350 page, like science fiction books that are full of like, full of like deep, deep, deep references to like probably 2000 years of history and literature and art that are just like beautifully interwoven that like, I couldn't write like one paragraph of, let alone the entire thing. They're incredible. But on top of this, just to kind of drive home this idea that you're like this actual living, as they say, Renaissance woman, you do, you're a professor at the University of Chicago in Renaissance history, as we know, then you have, you run, you are, you are an, what, I forget which instrument you play, but you have a, like you make, you're a composer and you write your own compositions and you have like kickstarted a number of albums, I believe, right? Yeah, so it's it's polyphonic acapella music. And what we're mostly known for is a Viking mythology series. So I, I set a bunch of Viking mythology stories to music. Uh, so there's a song that's the creation myth, for example. There's a song that's the blood blood relationship between Odin and Loki and the songs fit together to form a song cycle. And, and then do you're, you do, and do you do those in in English or in, yeah, in Old English. Norse? In English, I see. Um, and anime and Maja cons consultant. Why? How are you at? Okay, I know that you're an expert in anime and Maja, and like it's oh, in yeah, the books. Yeah. But like, what is a consultant? And anime and Maja? Do you like? Would you help me understand what the difference between anime and manga are? <laughs> so sometimes, like but um, where I'm stuck. But, but that actually is, is sometimes there'll be a show or a manga where there's a lot of history references in it, and then the company will contact me to do the history expert stuff for them. So, for example, in the show Drifters recently, which takes place in a weird version of an afterlife. Um, there's a character who showed up suddenly speaking ancient Greek and they have to translate and subtitle this. And because they're simulcasting, they have 48 hours. <laughs> and so they call me and say, Ada, we have 48 hours and this is in ancient Greek. Help. And I say, okay, here is what you, you. So that's the sort of thing that, that it is. Or sometimes there's a lot of anime that uh, does history, especially Enlightenment and uh, French Revolution era history, 
there was a very influential series called Rose of Versailles in the uh, 1960s, 70s, 70s. Um, that was a very revolutionary moment in the history of Japanese feminism and Japanese genderqueer and gender questioningness because it has a protagonist who is a girl who's raised as a boy and becomes the head of the royal guard defending Marie Antoinette, but is female-bodied. Oscar is the character's name. And, and ever since then, a huge amount of anime and manga that's interested in gender questions has used European history, especially 18th century, but also earlier European history as a sort of a signature for, we're gonna be doing weird gender stuff and explorative feminist gender stuff in this story. That's why we picked European culture to be where that background is. It's so interesting. Is it, is it disproportionately focused on Christina of Sweden? No, there's almost nothing. I think there's only like one manga about Christina of Sweden where there's like four or five around about Marie Antoinette, one, two with so so interesting. Um, and there's there's a current one coming out called Requiem for the Rose Prince, which is a version of Henry VI, focusing on Richard, except Richard is a hermaphrodite. Huh. Um, and again, it's doing weird gender stuff. And also, uh, as these things often do, having romantic interests with both a male partner and a female partner on the part of the person who's sort of not quite either one. Um, so we've got about 10, 12 minutes left if you want to get a question for Ada because we have completely monopolized her. Uh, <laughs> ping us in the Q&A and we will rapture you in and you can you know, defend uh, the sharp line between the Middle Ages and, <laughs> and the Renaissance or defend the sharp line between the present and the future. Or between uh, World War I and World War II. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, I've heard that, you know, there, there was really only one world war, uh, uh, but I've never heard that there was one world war and it ended in 89. I, I really like- What was the 89? The fall of the Berlin Wall? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But when you, when you hear historical nice. labels like the Wars of the Roses, right? The Wars of the Roses had long There's gaps a... in the middle in which there was peace, but we just sort of call it one thing. So on this thing of propaganda and historiography and everything else, let's yeah. like kind of just move into censorship. Oh, Joel Woodward, if you have a question, you can ask in the Q and A. Um, yeah, don't uh, don't just raise your hand. Yeah, because ask we in will the Q and A. Assume you are a Zoom bomber and <laughs> and and remove you, and then I'll get in trouble because I did that to somebody who turned out not to be a Zoom bomber, and I was had had to be very apologetic. Um, Dante, someone asks, Dante, medieval or Renaissance? Mm. Um, so I would put Dante solidly in the period that is medieval, but he is a major sort of turning point uh, or figure for, uh, for the uh, transition to Renaissance. And Renaissance figures claim him as an ancestor. So he's the really neat debate point. Uh, it's also important to remember that in different countries, the line is drawn in different places. So English historiography tends to draw the Renaissance line at 1400 or sometimes even 1450 uh, because the bulk of Renaissance there is going to be Shakespeare. Italians tend to put Dante as the beginning of Moderna, uh, which is the Italian term that goes Dante to present. So that itself is in itself a, um, uh, a neat indicator in that way. My favorite Renaissance debate text over whether Dante is medieval or Renaissance claims that Dante is Renaissance because at one point he wrote a 10 line Latin introduction to the Commedia, 
And because it was in Latin, it meant that it was in the spirit of later Latin. The Renaissance, <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Can I, I'm going to, I want to, Joel has a good question, but really quickly, um, I, I hope, well, I'm going to ask my question, then ask Joel's question. We can see where things go. Um, so uh, there is, um, I could kind of want to like talk about how the, about how the idea of historiography and the idea of um, propaganda yes. um, and creating or defining history and places and stopping points in history, how it ties into the idea of censorship. And you explore this in this super interesting way um, in, um, in the books, you have this kind of pun of calling someone a censor, but actually it means the censor as in like, the, the, like census. The, the census, right, exactly. And we've talked about this, but I want other people to benefit from this conversation because I think it's so good. Um, and so I kind of want to talk about like how what we just have talked about and like under over like all of the stuff we talked about just today about the historiography and the propaganda and all of that, the defining of moments in history through numbers or the defining of moments in history through counting or like these types of, uh, these types of, seemingly clear lines that when you right. interrogate them or not. Right, because we, and we're constantly moving these lines around and we're constantly assuming that these lines are consistent in other countries' definitions of themselves. But the, you know, uh, the line between medieval and Renaissance is in different places if you go to different places ge geographically. Or if you ask, who's the first modern philosopher? If you ask Italians, you get Machiavelli or maybe Petrarch. If you ask Frenchmen, you get Descartes. If you ask Englishmen, you get um, uh, Francis Bacon, uh, and and for each of them, the important defining characteristics that come in at that moment is it the birth of modern political science with Machiavelli? Is it the birth of uh, modern inductive reasoning with Descartes? Is it the birth of uh, the scientific method and and so on with? Uh, sorry, it's deductive with Descartes. It's inductive with Bacon. Um, uh, every time we talk about history, we're selectively invoking particular things and thereby also selectively silencing other things and constructing a version of where we came from that can't not be shaped by our own experiences, right? And I know my own conception of the Renaissance, I don't believe to be objective when everyone else's isn't. It's my own understanding of it as well. I went to the Renaissance because I was excited to see how things like World War I shaping Freud's death instinct happened. Well, and here I have a version of the Renaissance where I focus on the relationship between the wars and the ideas, right? That's what I'm gonna find when I get there. Other people's renaissances aren't wrong either. But as we construct histories, we are accidentally and constantly producing artificial ones. And then as censorship gets added into the mix, you have different regimes that celebrate particular histories of themselves or bits of the past that they want to claim. Uh, I think the other thing I'll say briefly, and then I'm sure I haven't said exactly what you wanted. So you can no, this is, I mean, it's always like interesting. Uh, one of my observations recently has been that one of the victims of a censorship regime, of a censorious regime, is the future ability to tell histories about that regime. Because when you know a regime had a lot of censorship, all of the texts produced in it become suspect, which means future people can then project whatever they want to onto those suspect texts and say, ah, well, if these people had been free to say it, they really would have said this thing. Uh, and you can't prove it's not true because you know the people are writing in a state of unfree expression. So in the Renaissance, for example, there's a big fight about are all these people secret atheists? 
is Machiavelli and Pomponioleto and all these other people, are they all actually secret atheists? Is the real heart of the Renaissance the beginning of modern secularism? And the evidence for this is, well, they were all living in a censorship regime, so they couldn't say it, but they probably would have if they did, because they agree with modern people about these other things. And you can never vanquish that evidenceless hypothesis because the existence of censorship means that the historical record can't be used as reliable. Evidence. I just love this point because it just deepens the 1984 concept of censorship so much, which it just all seems about losing a historical record and does not deal with the fact that the in that in that like vacuum a new historical record takes takes hold and it's not necessarily like the record of the oppressor or whatever else it's the record of anyone is going anyone to want to create, who a, wants create to a story out of this onto that era and one of the problems we're always going to have with china right now and with the ussr is that you know 150 years from now some political crisis will be going on in which it's useful to people to project some idea backwards onto the USSR or onto China right now. And no one will be able to counter that projection because everyone will know that those periods produced texts that were disrupted by censorship and therefore unbelievable. So no one will be able to disprove that propagandistic retcon of what people really thought in that period. It makes it permanently susceptible to exploitation. It's, by it's such a rich point. It's such a rich point. I love that you, you're really probably one of the only people I think has made it in that context and supported it historically. And like, I really deeply, I just like love that point. Um, we have, um, we have a bunch of, sorry, we have a bunch of questions, but we have a question from Joel really, Joel, I'm just, you want me to read them all? Ben? Yeah, why don't you? Yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't you? Why don't you read? Just go through the questions, tick them through, and yes. do it as a lightning round. Yes. So Joel writes in that the only Nordic skiing event he's ever done is the Birkbinder. Question: Are you a Nordic skier? And is there a Nordic skiing historic reenactors besides the Birkbinder? Do you know anything about this? No. Um, my Nordic expertise is mainly Viking era. I've been working a lot on Viking Greenland lately, which is really useful for thinking about what COVID is actually going to do. We should not be looking at the Renaissance. We should be looking at Viking Greenland. Oh, interesting. I want to hear about that. Okay. And then you talked about it's, Italy it's, and their it's, contribution. It's not a happy story. Oh, it's not? It's well, really it not. It isn't. isn't. Um, What's the... I, Ada's like my, Ada also runs a beautiful hashtag called hashtag something beautiful, which is just like a lovely thing to click on, um, on Twitter. If you, uh, are to contribute to, if you're so inclined that just like is a very uplifting part of social media. Um, anyways, sorry, I'm like getting you at, you talked about Italy and their contribution. There's two questions. I'm going to read them together. You talked about Italy and their contribution to banking and financial markets. Where did the Flemish figure into financial modernity? So, and then Jen and then Jenna Jordan asks, what is the origin story behind the Marquis de Sade having such a strong influence on Terragnota? He seems like the odd one out when compared with Voltaire, Hobbes, Diderot, et cetera, um, but also a total genius and key to the story. So that's a very fan based question, but either go ahead. Um, so on on Flemish or I always think of it of Duchy of Burgundy as the heart of it. It's the other major financial and banking center that is in a strong symbiosis with Italy. And you know, we, we 
we often have this thing where it's the idea that you know x prospered in this country y prospered in this country z prospered in this country we tend to slice the renaissance up a little bit too much uh because all these people are moving right just just kind of play who is a key figure in the in flemish music and or Burgundian music spends a big part of his career in Italy, fleeing from the wars in Burgundy, and then flees from the wars in Italy back to the wars in Burgundy. Um, but banking only works when you're interconnected internationally. The whole point is you can deposit your bag of gold in this city, travel a long distance and get your bag of gold out in this other city and not get it stolen by bandits on the way. And I know that talking about stolen by bandits makes makes it sound almost silly. You're like, oh, ha, ha you know, bandits, but like, Petrarch lost every, almost every single one of his scholar friends in the Black Death when he lived through it. He had an unusually large portion of his social world uh, go down in and even for people who lived through the Black Death. Two of his friends survived. They wrote to him afterwards saying they were gonna come visit. They came visit, they were killed by bandits on the way. Uh, it was a real big problem. One of them eventually escaped and, and lived. The other one was actually killed. Um, so, uh, the Flemish and Italian banking flourishing and the Flemish cultural flourishing are in symbiosis with each other and people are traveling back and forth and the not only the prosperity but also the wars when Charles the Bold doesn't have an heir and then both France and the empire are trying to annex the Duchy of Burgundy and that gets involved in the Italian wars as well in a big mess. If you put them back together as one unit rather than separating these into the Spanish Renaissance and the this Renaissance and the that Renaissance, they make much more sense because the same human beings are moving around. Um, uh, but we're... The other one is Marquis de Sade. Oh yes. Which is just basically like how does he fit, how does the Marquis fit in with, with right, so the other and the Marquis, So Diderot, Voltaire and the Marquis de Sade, all three of them are very concerned with the question of is hypocrisy an essential and positive element of human psychology? Uh, Diderot and, and de Sade are particularly interested in this. The idea that we know that X is rationally true, but we need for practical senses to do Y sometimes because Y is what's civilizationally practical. And our minds sort of switch back and forth and allow us to do Y even though we know that X is logically true. Uh, and Diderot and de Sade both explore this in things like philosophy in the boudoir or the Rameau's nephew story. Um, it's hard to do this quickly. <laughs> uh, I know. But, it's okay. You don't have to answer it all, but like. Uh, uh, they are both deeply engaged in this question of is our ability to rationally know that something is true and yet behave in contrariness to it for socially practical reasons actually positive? Uh, and a necessary precursor of, of, of human civilization. So for example, we know that most social mores are irrational. Uh, we know that charity is often actually detrimental to the person doing it, but we nonetheless do charity and we nonetheless follow social mores and allow ourselves to be shaped by irrational, emotional, you know, uh, 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 negative reactions to violating social taboos which in turn keeps society going. Uh, isn't that in a way therefore beneficial to the civilization above perfectly rational behavior, which can also lead to coldness. So Diderot and de Sade explored these ideas in kind of different kinds of works, but less different than people imagine, particularly because both of them wrote porn. Or porn. Both of them were what? Wrote porn. I no, they did. The Nun, which was the first lesbian pornographic novel. Uh, 
So they're both writing porn to make money. That's uh, how you made money. On that cheerful note. <laughs> I mean, the uh, thing is, is it actually is super cheerful. I actually just kind of, I just like, yeah, I think that this is like, and on that note, you can Viking, go download some Marquis de Sade for free. I think it's in the public domain. I think it is. Viking Greenland in 30 seconds. We used to think that it was climate change. We've determined that it wasn't climate change that wiped out the Viking settlement. So the Viking settlement disappeared in 1410. We're we've been trying to figure out why we've had lots of wrong theories. And the current one is the Black Death 1348 never got to Greenland, but it created so many economic shifts on the mainland that the primary economy of Greenland, which had been exporting luxury walrus ivory, the bottom fell out of that market. And so the people in Greenland no longer had an economic backbone. But meanwhile, there was suddenly a demand for farm labor on the mainland because lots of people have died. So they emigrated back to the mainland and turned from walrus fishers to farmers. Greenland never got the Black Death, but the fact that the pandemic transformed the economy and what was needed and where demand was and where labor need was resulted in the community changing and moving and that particular sub-community dying out, but actually transferring into a different one. What COVID is going to do is change the economy so that different sectors shrink, other sectors grow like that. So is, is the idea that the, I mean, my impression of the Greenland community was that it it thrived for a while and then kind of melted back into the Iceland community. Yeah, I mean, um, there's, a, there's a great new book on this called Norse Greenland Viking Peasants in the Arctic. There it is with its beautiful interlibrary loan tag. Or in <laughs> blue cover. Um, but it's a wonderful history of all the ways we've been wrong about Iceland. Because Iceland, I mean, sorry, Greenland, Greenland, just like the Italian Renaissance, we kept having theories that fit things we were excited about at the time. Uh, we were like, oh, there's erosion there. Maybe it was that the Vikings didn't know how to use the land properly and caused erosion and were being bad negative environmental exploiters while the Inuits knew how to use the land well. Oh, wait, that erosion turned out to have been caused in the 17th century, never mind. Um, uh, oh, maybe it was the climate change. Maybe it was the Little Ice Age, which hit at that point and meant that the fish went different places so they didn't have enough fish do more math. Oh, wait, actually, uh, the fish they ate didn't get affected by it. It only affected other fish that are not those fish, because fish are more complicated than we knew. Or we would dig in their uh, refuse bins and say, oh, there aren't fish bones in their refuse bins. Maybe the reason that they died out was that, unlike the Inuits who were living off of fish, they were insistently farming and trying to live off of farming the way they did in Europe and wouldn't adjust to the needs of the land and weren't fishing. But then Later, we got carbon dating analysis and determined, oh, actually, if we look at their bones, they're totally eating a lot of fish. It's just that they were also eating the bones of the fish because they used every bit of the animal the way you say you're supposed to do. Uh, and so we just kept being wrong. But every thesis of, oh, the bad Europeans are exploiting the land. Oh, they didn't know how to adapt to the thing. Oh, it was climate change. All hit exactly at moments when we wanted that to be the answer. Um, and it's like looking for your car keys under yeah. the street lamp. I think the last thing I want to say about that, though, is points at which we're totally wrong about history are incredibly valuable. Uh, and all of the history that I study, whether it's the Renaissance or Greenland, it's full of people who were totally wrong, but by being totally wrong, got other people excited about the period, got people to study it, who then discovered the stuff that was right. And we wouldn't have discovered the stuff that was right without those people who were wrong. 
I always bring up this example of Lamarck. Do you remember Lamarck? Yeah. Lamarck yeah. and the cutting off of the tails of the mice. And like you learn about him and the dude is famous for being wrong. Like that is yeah. like yeah. what he's, I'm like, what kind of scientist does it take that like, that's what you're like, all of the rest of them, Copernicus, half right, half wrong. Like Galileo, half right, half wrong. Like it's like all of these other things. Kepler, same thing. Yeah. Um, Newton, but like Lamarck, all you learn about him for is like, he just really <laughs> fucked it up. Like he just cut off all these mice's tails and proved, but he proved a really, really good point, which was that like, he was completely wrong. His hypothesis was completely incorrect. He never himself solved it, but he opened this question for an entire generation of geneticists. Yeah. Without which we wouldn't have the stuff. So, you know, Three cheers for every scientist who'd been wrong. We really need We it. should report. This is why people think we should report null hypotheses, yeah. right? So go out there. So we got to wrap up. What do we do? Sorry. The message is go out there, be wrong about the past, be wrong about the future, be wrong about the present, uh, and somebody else, will, somebody else will get it right. Just um, write it all down. And the debates over in what way we were wrong and how to figure it out are the richest part of doing history and knowing anything. Really well said, Ada. So, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you for inviting me. This was this has fun. been super fun. Thank you so well. It's been in lieu of fun, but uh, it's been in lieu of, yeah. <laughs> but Ada, thank you so much for coming on. Um, ben, I will see you tomorrow um, for Preet Bahara, the former U.S. Attorney from the Southern District of New York. Yeah, but before he shows up, though, uh, learn to pronounce his name. It's Barara, do I do not Bahara. What I think you I said say? Bahara. Did I? Yeah. Um, I yeah. can't but, hear that difference even as you're saying it right now. So why don't you introduce him tomorrow? Okay. You can just also call him Preet. Okay, um, sweet. That um, sounds good. Yeah, so that'll be fun. And, uh, or it'll, it'll be in lieu of fun. And then who do we have Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday? Um, Wednesday, we have um, Tomas Ilves, the... Uh, former uh, president of Estonia. Uh, yeah, that's going to be fun. That's going to be good. Uh, Tomas is like, among other things, he is uh, uh, just an incredibly deep thinker about Russia and its relationship with Eastern Europe. He's also a hardware engineer by training. And so he knows a great deal about cybersecurity. And he is kind of the visionary political figure behind the Estonian degree of uh, e-government and the sort of cybersecurity associated with Estonian citizenship. And he's just a very interesting person. Yeah, he and came up he, in that he came up with the talk in the talk with Nate personally and Alex Stamos, right? Correct. And he's the by the way, he is the first president uh, that I know of of a of any country to have a Twitter feed that he manned personally. And when I first, uh, I used to interact with him, I would you know, tweet stuff at him from Lawfare and he would tweet back. And I thought, what a cool thing it is that the president of an actual country is like that engaged with citizenry. How and, are you feeling and, about that now, Ben? Yeah, and, and now <laughs> I look at it and I'm like, Tomas, you've created a monster. Um, but he's like the Frankenstein of this monster. Like it was all so well-intentioned and in his hands, it was a good thing. 
Um, Moss. Then we have David Plotz, the former editor in chief of Slate and the host of Slate Gabfest on Thursday. And, and, on and Thursday. the guy who ran Atlas Obscura for until yeah. very recently. He's, David is a remarkable guy and very thoughtful and fun and funny. And we'll, uh, we will uh, have good in lieu of fun with, with David. Yeah. And then on Friday, we have, oh, Seth Magaziner, who is the treasurer of Rhode Island right now to talk to us about state budgets and what's going on. And you're going to bring college photos of him, right? Yeah. I have a picture of him in a Carmen Miranda outfit from, uh, from college. Um, it is pretty much, I'm, I'm not going to bring, I'm not going to bring it to the show. I'm just saying that I have it though. (laughs) I think we should at least like threaten to have (laughs) pictures of him. Yeah. Show the back of it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll show the back of the photo. That's exactly- so that's the rest of the week, and then and then Saturday, if he's uh, instead of doing a just us, we uh, we hereby invite Yasha Monk to come back for an actual uh, being the guest, not merely the uh, the sort of uh, being the guest because he happened to be in the room when and we talking were recording authoritarianism. The show. Yeah, with with and his awesome Schmidian? German Is he accent. A Schmidian? No, 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 no. He's a He's a uh, uh, he's a a liberal anti schmidian That's what I kind of figured. That's what I figured um, before. So that's the week, uh, and you know we'll be back tomorrow. And until then, uh, if you can't have fun in lieu of fun, you can still hang out with us. Bye, Ada. See you later. Bye.